trust me, I'm like a smart person. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast where we ask academics to shed some light on the big issues in the news. And today we're talking about... Yes, it's summertime in Australia, but the living has not been easy. Temperatures have been as high as 47 degrees Celsius or more in parts of the country. And scientists have warned people in Sydney and Melbourne to prepare for 50 degree days by the end of the century. And surprise, people in less well-off areas of town cop it worst. Natalie Pitcher explains. That's the sound of a Queensland police officer frying an egg on the hood of his patrol car on a 46-degree day in early 2017. As Australian temperatures continue to soar, new research has revealed that disadvantaged suburbs are at risk from something called the heat island effect. Melbourne's western suburbs have up to 25% less tree canopy coverage than the greener, wealthier areas in the east, which means that it can be up to 10 degrees hotter than forecast temperatures. The situation in Sydney is similar. These hotspots have already proven to be a big problem for community wellbeing. Heatwaves in 2009 and 2014 caused an unprecedented number of deaths from heat stress in Victoria. With climate change set to bring about even hotter temperatures, finding a way to cool our melting suburbs will be more important than ever. The heat island effect is caused by uh, changing natural land surface cover to, to urban environments. That's Casey Furlong. He's a postdoctoral fellow at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT. He's currently working on a project with City West Water called Greening the West, which will see one million additional trees planted in Melbourne's most vulnerable suburbs by the end of 2018. So you lose trees, grass and shrubs, and you gain concrete and buildings. And because these are hard surfaces and a lot of them are dark, it retains a lot more heat than uh, natural surface cover. Also, because you lose the trees, you lose shade, which means that more sun is hitting hard surfaces, which then retain the heat. The heat island is a phenomenon that was first sort of discussed in the 1950s, mainly in Europe and the US. And that's Marco Amati, an environmental scientist. Recently, he was part of a team researching whether or not the amount of greenery in Australian local government areas is increasing. Spoiler, it's not. The study, called Where Should All the Trees Go?, looks at the relationship between levels of greenery in cities and suburbs and heat. And the idea is to sort of picture the earth, as it were, as if it was not urbanised. Um, so just farmland or bush or whatever. And to try to model the temperature of the urbanised component on top of that. And the reason that's important is because when urbanisation happens, uh, you're replacing living things that transpire that don't emit a great deal of heat with things that do. So asphalt, concrete, what they'll do is they'll, they'll absorb infrared radiation and they'll keep it for a really long time and then they'll re-radiate it out during the night. I guess one of the features of our study is that it shows that a lot of the hotspots are actually on the fringes of the city rather than necessarily being in the centre. 
Local government areas in Melbourne's west, like Brimbank, Hobsons Bay, Maribyrnong, Melton, Mooney Valley and Wyndham, have been shown to be the most vulnerable to the heat island effect. Suburbs in western Sydney are similarly affected. But what's interesting again is that the sort of the fringes of the city are where people of um, lower uh, socioeconomic advantage live. Uh, houses are obviously cheaper there. So I guess it exacerbates some of the sort of inequities and inequalities that you find in Australian cities today. There are socioeconomic factors, like not being able to afford to turn on the air conditioner, if you even have one. There's also the incidence of vulnerable populations, like people who are over the age of 65 and living alone, or children under five years old, and people with health concerns like diabetes and cardiovascular conditions, who are most at risk of heat stress. The researchers combined these factors with satellite imagery measuring heat island intensity to create the VEDA index, which stands for Vulnerability to Heat, Poor Health, Economic Disadvantage and Access to Green Spaces. So what's behind the disparity in green coverage between Melbourne's east and west? Yeah, so there's two main reasons. The the first is uh, just sort of the biophysical context of the region. Uh, so historically, if you go back before sort of the urban areas were set up, a lot of the eastern suburbs were forest and a lot of the western suburbs were grassland. And this is because uh, the eastern suburbs have more rain and also better soil quality. So that's why in, in the western suburbs you didn't see many uh, forests sort of forming naturally before before they were settled as urban areas. But the other side of it, is uh, the way the built environment was set up. So this is probably quite a complex issue, but my understanding is that, so a lot of the Western suburbs were built as uh, sort of industrial and commercial areas, and or they were set up as residential, but with the idea being that the houses weren't gonna be as expensive, and so not as much money would have gone into uh, the way the lots were set up, the way the open space was done, uh, the way the streets were designed. So I think, yeah, the combination of how the original biophysical characteristics, and then also the the, uh, the way that they were done in terms of the built environment together has resulted in this significant difference between the, the western suburbs and the rest of the city. This all sounds quite dire, but the good news is there's a pretty simple solution. We just need to plant more trees. As it turns out, trees are nature's super air conditioners that can be used to cool our melting suburbs down. But how exactly does this work? Well, there's basically two effects. On the one hand, you've got the you've got, of course, the direct shading. Now, you know this is kind of a little bit tricky sometimes because, in fact, better shade is provided by deciduous trees, which are, of course, exotic. Um, the whole design of a eucalypt tree is to actually let the light through to the ground, but in doing so, to also kill the plants that would otherwise grow up using the um, eucalypt oils that drop onto the ground. Oh dear. So, <laughs> and, and, and in fact, eucalypt trees are also very good at reflecting light. So you've got this incredible bark and the leaves, of course, beautiful leaves, but they're all about actually um, getting rid of the light. So you've got the shading taking place on the one hand, and then, of course, you've got the transpiration. So that's the work that the tree does in drawing up water and evaporating it, that in itself is a cooling um, effect. And there's even a third property, which is basically trees can actually generate wind. During the day, if you've got trees uphill from where you're standing, the trees will actually trap warm air as it rises underneath their leaves 
and that will cool because of the leaves. And so in the evening, that cool air will drop down a hillside. And oddly enough, you think, well, this is kind of really wacky stuff. Surely people won't take that seriously. Uh, in the city of Stuttgart in the 1970s, they actually legislated to maintain the trees up on the hillsides above the city because they knew that that property would be used for flushing out all the air pollutants that built up during the day in the city. So they've had a very strong control over development on the hills surrounding Stuttgart since the 1970s because they knew that that effect was taking place. So it's real. Yeah, airshed, airshed management. In central Melbourne, even a single tree can radically reduce temperatures. Thermal imaging shows a 40 degree difference between the surface heat of the road and the tree's canopy. But it's not as simple as heading over to Bunnings and picking up the first tree you see. We need to be strategic about the kinds of trees we plant and the way we plant them. One thing that we do need to be really careful of though is that the, the trees that we're selecting for planting need to be designed, uh, need to be selected on the basis of what's going to happen with climate change, uh, which means we, we need to pick species that are going to be resilient to both heat and drought. And it also means we need to uh, look for opportunities to support the greenery with additional water resources. So trees can survive heat waves and droughts a lot better if you can water them. And so there's, there's some thinking to do around uh, supporting greenery with additional water resources. So uh, harvesting stormwater from, from rainfall within the city, using recycled water, uh, you know, even the way you, the way you plan how much water to use from the desalination plant uh, can be impacted by by the amount of water that you want to use for, for supporting urban greenery. We can expect temperatures to get hotter, but on the flip side of that, when we do get rainfall events, we can expect that they'll be much more severe. The same factors behind the heat island effect, the replacement of natural permeable surfaces with hard man-made ones, will mean the amount of rain entering stormwater drains is going to strain the system and cause flooding. Turns out, trees can help take care of this too. So in any city, one of the most expensive items of infrastructure is the stuff that gets buried underground because it's so expensive to dig it up and replace it. And so anything you can do to um, extend the life cycle of that infrastructure is a really good thing. And trees have the most extraordinary property of absorbing rainfall for a temporary situation. So they will, rather than just letting that rainfall hit the asphalt and then go straight into the pipes and so flood the system, they'll actually slow all of that down. And in some cases, around, I think, 30 to 50% of the water will actually get lost in the tree by simply evaporating off the leaves. So you've got these amazing sort of sponges basically on sticks around the city that help to absorb and delay the rainfall that goes into the pipes. It has been confirmed that 31,000 homes across Sydney lost power as the temperature rose above 45 degrees yesterday. That is despite previous government assurances that blackouts were unlikely to happen this summer. Blackouts. They're a staple of the Australian summer. They have been since I was a kid. As I sat through my annual summer blackout at home in Sydney this year, dying from the heat, wishing I'd charged my phone, I had two questions. 
Why is this still happening? And is there anything I could even do about it? Well, there's two different types of blackouts. That's Chris Dunstan. I'm a research director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. Chris, as it turns out, had answers for both my questions, the why and the what I could do about it. There's the blackout that happens when you have an electrical storm and the lightning bolt hits the transmission tower or a local substation and that's going to black out an area. That always happens. The other type of blackout is when we just don't have enough energy to go around. That is what the electricity system operators really worry about, particularly in February when air conditioning demand goes through the roof. Just as temperatures soared and air conditioners ran full throttle, power was cut to thousands of properties. About a third of the total demand on the electricity in summer is caused by residential or home air conditioning. Did you catch that? A third of the demand for electricity in summer is just people cranking their air conditioners at home. That 30% doesn't even include aircon at places like offices, shopping centres or cinemas. It's just home air conditioning. And while January is famously hot every year, the temperature got as high as 47 degrees in parts of Sydney in January this year, Chris told me it's actually February when energy ministers and energy operators start to get really nervous that there won't be enough electricity to go round. February is the most critical month. So it's still summer, it's still hot, but people have come back from holidays, back at work, factories are cranking up, kids are back at school, and that means that you've got people all coming home from work and from school at the same time, putting on the air conditioner as they walk into a, a hot house, seeking some, some relief from 30 degree plus temperatures outside. If you're one of the many, many people in Australia cranking up the aircon all at the same time on those really hot days, Chris has a suggestion. Switch your aircon on earlier in the afternoon. And when the house is nice and cool, you can turn the aircon down or even off during those peak times between 5 and 7pm. Then sit and enjoy your nice cool house, knowing that you've done a little bit of public good to ease the pressure on the electricity network and reduce the risk of a blackout. And if you're one of the millions of Australians with rooftop solar, you'll be trimming your power bill too. So I've just pulled out my smartphone and I'm just clicking on the app. My air conditioner's a Dakin, so it's a Dakin uh, D-Mobile app. And it's uh, simply a matter of uh, pressing the on button and uh, away the air conditioner goes, whether I'm at home or whether I'm away at work or anywhere. Because it's Wi-Fi connected. Correct. So, for example, at our place, we use the air conditioner in the afternoon uh, using the free solar energy from the roof. Uh, it cools the house down so that when people come home, the house is nice and, and cool. And we can then wind back on the air conditioner and uh, remove, take that pressure off both our own bills, but also the electricity system. The federal government has had a few cracks at trying to solve this summer blackout problem recently by, for example, putting pressure on AGL to keep the Liddell coal power plant in New South Wales open longer, or expanding pumped hydroelectric storage in the Snowy Mountains scheme, a project known as Snowy 2.0. But Chris says managing demand for electricity is possibly the most important part of the picture and billions of dollars cheaper. We've recently just completed a, a study at our institute looking at the economics of the idea of extending the life of Liddell Power Station. 
And what we found is that it would be much, much cheaper to invest in energy efficiency and demand management, including shifting the time of energy use, than it would be to invest in extending the life of Liddell Power Station. Now, in that same study, we also looked at the cost of extending the Snowy Hydroelectric Scheme, Snowy 2.0 as it's come to be known. And to do energy efficiency, to do demand management, to shift energy demand along the lines of what we've been talking about today would be billions, literally billions of dollars cheaper than uh, investing in Snowy 2.0. Quite shocking how easy you make it sound. You sound like a, a real optimist. <laughs> well, that's um, I get a little bit frustrated uh, around this sometimes because the solutions are really not that complicated. It's not about coming up with fancy new technology. The solutions are here and now. It's just about taking advantage of them and people being aware of them. But also importantly, giving people the right sort of information and signals, including price signals, to be able to take advantage of them. It's really not as hard as it's often made out to to solve this whole climate and energy problem. Special thanks today to the Conversations intern, Natalie Pitcher to Casey Furlong from the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT and Marco Amati from RMIT. Thank you to Chris Dunstan from the Institute of Sustainable Futures at UTS for showing me his home aircon unit and to conversation editor Jenny Henderson for editing this episode together. Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks and we've used music in this episode from David Setze, Ketzer and other artists from Free Music Archive. You can see a full list of audio and music credits on our website at theconversation.com. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is out at the start of every month. And before you go, I just want to let you know about a new podcast we've launched at The Conversation called Essays on Air, where we read to you the best essays from Australian researchers. Here's a taste. Descents into and ascents from the underworld are themes incorporated repeatedly into modern cinema film developed from theatre, which in its earliest form was a way of animating mythical sagas. The catharsis has endured in cinema because it can be applied to most characters' times and settings. Often eschewing a literal journey to the underworld, a cinematic catharsis may follow a quest into a type of hell. Find us and subscribe in Apple Podcasts, in Pocket Casts or at theconversation.com.